Some of those purpose is to make days better. If we're successful in our purpose, and if we can give you just a glimpse of incremental joy or happiness, then you think about the impact that we can have in the country by being a small source of joy. That's exciting to me. Spoke to this about you know how we can leverage what we do to, to drive the change we want to see. That's what we're trying to do. I mean, we we invest in our associates and we design our associate value proposition not in a way in which you know what does the market demand or what does the market bear for things or for people, but you know what do our people deserve? And just objectively, like with a global perspective, do our people deserve a living wage? Do they deserve maternity leave? Do they deserve health insurance? You know what's that list look like? And you know before we start to add bells and whistles over here. You know, let's stay focused on people in our employ and make sure that they're respected and dignified to the extent that they should be. And that's what we tried to do. Podcasting from Boulder, Colorado. This is the Baby Got Backstory podcast, where we dive into the story behind the story of today's most inspiring storytellers, creators, and entrepreneurs. I like big backstories and I cannot lie. I am your host, Mark Gutman. I'm Mark Gutman, and on today's episode of Baby Got Backstory, how a young boy from Iowa grew into his destiny to run one of the largest networks of privately owned convenience stores in the Midwest. I am so excited about today's episode because I'm personally obsessed with relevance. How do we stay relevant? How do we reinvent ourselves? How do we move forward with the world as it moves forward around us? And how do we stay relevant while affecting change? And today's guest is all about relevance. Last week, we had Ariel Rubin from Come and Go on the show. And today, we are talking with Tanner Kraus, president of Come and Go. And before we get to Tanner, I want to remind you to rate and review this show. If you're listening, I'm assuming you like it. And if that's the case, please take a minute or two to rate and review us over at Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Apple Podcasts and Spotify use these ratings as part of the algorithm that determines the ratings on their charts. Ratings are good for us so we can continue to produce this show. Better yet, please recommend this show to at least one friend you think will like it. That's just being a good friend. Tanner Krause is the president of Come and Go, headquartered in Des Moines, Iowa. He is the fourth generation to lead the family-owned business. And as president, Tanner oversees the marketing, operations, human resources, information technology, finance, and store development functions. Together, these teams provide support to 5,000 associates and 400 stores across 11 states. Did I mention that Tanner is 32 years old? But you wouldn't know it by listening to him. And as you'll hear in today's interview, he was raised for this job. And he knew ever since he knew something that this was his calling. And the combination of the two makes it no surprise that he is president today. What may surprise you is Tanner's perspective on the convenience store, of the impact they are making on their employees, their communities, and the world. Tanner is not simply along for the ride. He sees Come and Go as a platform to do good while continuing to build the business. As I mentioned last week, as a customer, I am so enamored by Come and Go. 
I seek out their stores when I'm on the road, and I'm so honored to have Tanner Kraus on the show. And this is his story. So I am here with Tanner Kraus, the president of Come and Go. Tanner, welcome. And if you could start off by telling us, what is Come and Go? Well, Mark, thanks for having me. And shout out to all your listeners out there. I love talking about Come and Go. So Come and Go is a convenience store company based in Des Moines, Iowa. We've been around for 61 years. We're in 11 states across most of the Midwest. And we've got about 400 locations. And it's kind of a funny name. Uh, where, where does the name Come and Go come from? Sure. Come and Go is a name based actually on my family. So uh, we're a family business. I'm the fourth generation of my family to lead the business. And, you know, Come and Go grew out of one store in Hampton, Iowa in 1959. And I like to say that Come and Go was a love story. You had my grandpa who was working for Continental Oil, who's about to get relocated to Wyoming. And his soon-to-be father-in-law said, there's no way in hell you're taking my daughter from Iowa to Wyoming in the 50s. Why don't I buy that service station that's for sale on the corner and you can run it and we'll go into business together. So that keeping Nancy gentle in Hampton, Iowa was the impetus for the first store in this business. And it was Hampton oil company. Well, we grew pretty rapidly. They had a good little model and finally we needed a name and didn't want to call it Hampton oil as we went into these other small towns in Northern Iowa. So we needed the name and they wanted to name my grandpa and my great grandpa that brought in the K from my last name, Kraus, and then the G from my great grandpa's last name, Gentle. So we had the name Come and Go. And this is early 60s. So my grandfathers go into the sign company in Northern Iowa and they say, We need, you know, we have whatever, nine stores, we need three signs per store, and here's our name. Sign guy goes, okay, it's 50 bucks a letter and does the arithmetic as, all right, it'll cost you this much money to buy signage for your stores. And being the scrappy entrepreneurs that we were, uh, they looked at the name and said, 50 bucks a letter, that's too expensive. What if we do this? No longer will the A-N-D, we'll use the ampersand, save two characters, and we can spell come instead of spelling it K-O-M-E, we can spell it K-U-M, save a third character. And then they got a new quote. They probably saved, I don't know, 4,000 bucks or something in the early 60s. And Come and Go, as you know it today, was named. Oh, that's awesome. And, it, and it's become an iconic name ever since. And then so from that moment where we're kind of in this moment where the, the name gets more or less branded, or I guess maybe the the typography of it comes about in this organic way, uh, and the name uh, comes about. What happens there with the business? How does it continue to grow and expand? Well, I think the thing that we've gotten better at recently is talking about the elephant in the room. And there was a long stretch of time where we didn't know how to address the reality that it is our name. 
and the innuendo and the euphemism and the underlying sexual tone in our name. So we avoided it. And looking back, that was probably the wrong strategy because we allowed others to control the narrative of our brand asset. Instead, we've now embraced the fact that our name is our name and we're controlling the narrative. And we're doing so in a way that doesn't cheapen who we are. It doesn't invite further sexualization of our brand. It addresses the awkwardness in a mostly mature manner. And we even stamp out uh, rude or uh, desexualizing comments on our social media accounts so that we, we don't have that type of negative activity or surrounding us. And so now it's becoming more of the conversation and more normalized. And we're seeing a really positive reaction to that. Yeah, and that's awesome. It's it's really this idea, you know, that you know I've talked about before, which is brand or be branded. Like either you're out there talking about it, or other people are, but people are talking about it, and so better. Like as you mentioned, to to try to, it's not even like uh, control the narrative. It's just like inform the narrative. It's it's more like shape it because you know narratives are kind of are two ways. You know, a lot of times or most of the time with our customers. And so I love that. And so kind of getting back though, to when you have these scrappy entrepreneurs, they're, they're building the business. How did the business grow from, and what I was trying to maybe ask, and, and I loved your answer because I, but I did a poor job. I think of the, the asking the question was how did the business grow from that point on? How did it begin to become this bigger thing that started to spread out across multiple States and, and, and over the generations have all these, all these locations. Yeah, happy to tell that story too. So, you know, we had a bit of magic in that first service station back in Hampton, Iowa. And so you had a couple of things going for you. Then my grandpa and my great grandpa. And so my grandpa, Bill Krause, was as charismatic a person as I ever met. He was incredible with people. He remembered everybody's name. He remembered more than just your name about you. And he made you feel important. He made you feel special. And he never lost that no matter how influential or wealthy he became. He was always, he had a gift with people and he worked his ass off. He, you know, my grandma still tells stories how when we had that first store, you would close overnight. Well, he would pin the home phone number to the gas pump. And if there was a trucker driving through Hampton at night, they knew they could go to his store, call him. He would put his boots on, get out of bed, drive down get the sale, and then go back home and sleep the rest of the night. And so he was that kind of guy. Then you had my great-grandfather who was you know, the consummate merchant. He was this businessman. He, he owned a pharmacy in northern Iowa uh, before he got into the gas and, and service business. Uh, his family, his parents ran a fruit stand in kind of pre-depression era Iowa. And so he was good at merchandising. He was good at you know, buying for a dollar and selling for two. And so they really pioneered what's the modern day convenience store, at least in our part of the country, in which you had this model that was very automobile focused. And it was oil changes and tire changes and fluid changes and gas. And it was kind of basics. And they were one of the first, you know, it's as the story is told, the first to really start to merchandise uh, staples with your automobile products. So they were selling bread, milk, eggs, nice to have. So they were really bringing convenience to the customer. And 
that combination of merchandising and marketing slash sales and people skills was a really successful one. So the store started to work, started to make a lot of money, relatively speaking. And then they were able to kind of go town to town across Iowa and, you know, no business plan, no formalities, but walk into the local banker and say, hey, this is my model. Do you believe in me with a small loan? I can get one of these going in your town. And that worked and it kept working and it kept repeating itself. And then that became come and go. And then we're growing through the 60s. We're going through the 70s. We're going through the 80s pretty organically, kind of one at a time, slow, slow, slow. As you get to the 80s and into the 90s, especially, our business grew to where we were able to start kicking off a decent amount of cash. And we were able to do some acquisitions. So we really grew from a store count perspective and a geographical reach in the 90s, especially. And so we had this operational magic and to some extent, a strong brand, but really the magic was in our ability to execute in stores. We could take a bankrupt chain of convenience stores in any town in the Midwest, buy it, run it, and be able to make a good money and have really quick returns through that process. And so we did that. That got us into Omaha, that got us into Colorado, that got us into Tulsa, got us into Springfield, Missouri, got us into a lot of the markets where we are today. So my grandfather really led this scaling of our enterprise, largely through acquisition. Next chapter is you have my dad coming up to the business. And so my dad graduated from University of Iowa in the mid 80s and went straight into come and go. So he's growing up during all this time. And he becomes CEO in 2004. And he shifts our growth strategy at the company. So we were an acquisition-based company. We shift to grow into an organic built company again, where we now start to build our own stores. And what he saw was while the acquisition-led growth had really positive short-term returns, right? You're buying really depreciated assets. You're putting come and go on the storefront. You're putting come and go people in the store, more importantly, and you're getting quick paybacks. So that, that was spinning well for us. But you wake up one day, we have 450 stores, all different types of associate and customer experiences. Uh, we've got some stores that 7-Eleven built. We've got some stores that get and go built. We've got some stores that mom and pop in Oklahoma built. And they're all over the place in terms of asset quality, product offering, product mix, plan the grant. The whole nine yards was really scattered. And so our brand suffered ultimately as a result of all that, even though financially we were quite strong. So dad kicks off this massive initiative to start to build new, rebuild the key real estate that we own and divest non-strategic assets in real estate. And we are just about on the tail end of this project that he kicked off. And I think it was 2010 or 2011 where we really got ambitious about turning over the chain of stores that we own and operate. And so we now have, you know, in his CEO experience or leadership, our store count has gone down as we've divested, but we've built new stores, high performing stores. Our volume per outlets are growing rapidly and our overall company financial health and ultimately the profitability has grown substantially since he took over, even though our total number of stores is actually smaller than it was in 2004. 
Yeah. And and then you come in and you become president and we'll get there in a second, but I kind of want to take a step back because you so clearly articulated and thank you for, for sharing that story and that, that journey of, of come and go and your family. And so, and do you have uh, brothers or, or other siblings? I do. Yeah. I'm one of four boys. Okay. And so, and, and can you just give me a rundown of um, what that looks like in terms of uh, ages and, and things like that? Yeah. So my older brother, Ryan, is in law school. He's uh, doing social justice law at the Cardoza School of Law in Manhattan. I'm the second oldest. My younger brother, Elliot, uh, also lives in New York City. He is the director of a creative writing program at a Jesuit high school in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And my youngest brother, Oliver, is the director of analytics for Parma Calcio. Oh, awesome. And so thank you for that. And so this might answer my question. So when you think back and, you know, Tanner, you know, you're eight, five, six, something like that growing up in Des Moines, did you always think that you would someday be in the family business? Did you dream of having a leadership role at Come and Go or was there something else for you? Absolutely. This is my dream. And I'm blessed to say that, you know, I woke up or I woke up, I grew up and I looked up to my dad. I looked up to my grandfather, even my great grandfather, you know, he passed away when I was 18 years old. So I had a lot of exposure to him as well. So, you know, I looked at, you know, my family as, as role models, as, as aspirational to me. And I've, always known I would do this and I've always known that I would be a part of come and go and most of my life experiences were designed around preparing me to have the job I have today yeah and so it's interesting like I like when I go into a come and go I feel that it's different and I don't know why and I think that that's always the hallmark of a great brand is you can't always identify why you're feeling something or why you recognize it but there's these little things, you know, and, and perhaps I can, I can trace it back to the stories you shared about your grandfather and your great grandfather and how they approached business. But like, you know, you do feel welcome. It, there is a, and I, and I want to ask you, you know, what you mentioned, you know, we have come and go people. What is a come and go person? Because like when I go into a come and go store, I mean, you talk about things about being a family business. There's values that are printed in different, you know, areas of the store. I mean, it just feels different. Has it always been that way? Or is this something that's, that's a little bit new uh, with the brand and, and the way that you're communicating your brand story through the store? Well, I think we're communicating our brand story in a new way. But I think the thread of consistency has been come and go people. And we've, as a brand, if you look back over the last 60 years, you know, if you heard a lot about what I was saying relative to our assets, we were not winning on asset or store experience or store quality for most of our company's history. Now, if you walk into Come and Goes today, thanks to the hard work of my father and our real estate team, we're finally winning on store stores, right? Our stores, by and large, are bigger, brighter, newer, younger, in better condition, better materials than the competition. I'll put our fleet up against just about anybody in the business. However, that was not always the case. Like I said, when we're buying bankrupt 7-Elevens in downtown Omaha, you don't have great assets. So we had to win with people. And we have core values that come and go. We have five. Passion, integrity, teamwork, caring, and excellence. 
And so what is a come and go person? A come and go person is somebody who embodies those core values. Somebody who gets out of bed in the morning and thinks about making days better for others. How do we come in and serve? And it's been this service mentality that has led us to be successful. And you saw that by, you know, my grandfather was not above doing anything in a come and go store. Even when he was in his 60s and 70s, if the garbage was unsatisfactory, he would take the garbage out. If the pumps were dirty, he'd walk in and say, you know, where are your cleaning materials? And he'd walk out and he'd clean the pump. And I saw him do that. I've been in come and go stores where here's this, you know, semi-retired founder cleaning pumps, taking out trash, getting the mop out of the bathroom. That's who he was. And so we have generations, decades of service-based leadership, of customer service-based associate training and culture built into our DNA. And ultimately, we're, we haven't been able to win on assets for a long time. Products in our industry are not very differentiated. You, know, you walk into our store, it's a similar line of products than when you walk into our competition. So it's a tough place for us to win. So you got to win on people. And that's why we've been successful for 61 years. I love that. And, you know, you mentioned that you were always destined to do this, that this was your dream job. I mean, do you remember that first day when you became president? Like, I know you were in the company prior to that. So it wasn't like you just like walked in, you know, one day and became president. But like, were you scared? Like, did you think like, am I going to be the fourth generation that screws this thing up? Like, did you have any apprehension? Absolutely. You know, I, I do want to say one thing. My dad's still CEO of the business. You now he empowers me more and more every day. And at some point there'll be an, uh, an additional transition where he'll step out of come and go a little bit more than he is today. You know, come and go is owned by the Krauss group. Krauss group owns and operates 10 different businesses, soon to be 11. And so we've got a lot going on in our portfolio and he's, trusted and empowered me and I'm appreciative of that. But absolutely, I've, I've been scared. I've been worried. I've been nervous. That motivates me. That gets me out of bed. You know, what you said, I think about a lot, right? I feel the pressure to perpetuate what we do as a business as my main responsibility in this life. And I'm not going to fail. We are not going to fail. And we are faced with some of the greatest challenges that come and go has ever faced. In my lifetime, we will see my prediction, almost the complete eradication of the internal combustible engine. Gas will go away. It'll become a novelty, right? The shift to electric or hydrogen fuel cells or some alternative energy source is a matter of when and not if, even though we still have a lot of time to figure that out. And then you look at what technology is doing to brick and mortar. Sure, our industry has been relatively protected from e-commerce because it's harder to get a hot cup of coffee delivered to your door from Amazon than it is to get a, a book. And so we're a little bit insulated, but that's coming and you're seeing that happen now. And so I view it as a personal responsibility, as a family responsibility to step up and say, we're not going to take the easy way out and sell. And we're not going to get our lunch eaten by somebody who hasn't been doing this as long as we've been doing this. So whether it was the first day I became president, which was June 1st, 2018, I was 30, or today, or in 10 years, 
we're going to get up every day and say, how does Come and Go continue to live its purpose? How does Come and Go continue to sustain itself generation after generation so that not only my family has something to be proud of, but every family of the 5,000 people that we employ has something they can be proud of for another generation. And that's, you know, quite a, a mantle to carry. And, you know, I can, I can feel like how much it means to you. And so when you think about it, what is the future of convenience? If we are moving towards this new world, you know, what does that look like? What are you thinking about? As I became the president, I've tried to shift the mentality of come and go. For a long time, we've classified ourselves as a convenience store. We're no longer a convenience store. We are in the immediate consumption business. That is our value to the customer, is that come and go stands for a place where it is easy and quick and convenient to get something to eat, drink that I want now. The convenience store has merely been the model of delivery for us to meet that consumer need. Because of technology and shifts in consumer behavior, there are now other ways to meet that same need. So we have to focus on being the immediate consumption retailer of choice for our target customer. So that when you in Colorado want a snack, want something to drink, want uh, something to smoke, you think of come and go, and we remain the most convenient option to get it to you quickly and conveniently for your immediate needs. That means evolving beyond traditional brick and mortar retail. That means leveraging our existing brick and mortar stores and locations to our advantage, because that remains our major competitive advantage over disruptors and people from outside of our industry. And so we'll leverage that. And it means developing technology to allow for the consumer to shop us at their choice and to not require that consumer to come get in their car, travel to our store, and shop on our turf on our terms in order to meet their needs. Because in this century, it's all about customer and convenience, and those customers will pay a premium for it. And so if we're not there, and if we're not on the attack, and if we're waiting for customers to come to us, we're going to be out of business. Yeah. And what I can say about like, even in this time, in this present day, you know, like I, every, every summer I drive my family from Colorado to uh, Michigan for the summer. And I, you know, good, right, right through come and go territory, right, right through come and go country. And literally, I mean, my family is like, we are only stopping at a come and go. And especially at your new, are they called fresh market or what's the new, the newer concepts? The marketplace the marketplace where they have healthy options, where they have good food. You know, it's interesting. Like my kids are like, I won't eat at McDonald's. I won't eat it fast. You know, like, and so it really does feel like you understand the customer and who you're trying to serve and the present day and modern customer, you know, like you walk into any of your competitors and it's like, basically there, there are no healthy options. And it's like pizza that's been sitting there for, you know, probably half the day and things like that. So that really is felt, um, you know, and, and, and one of the things that, that so impresses me about come and go. And so when you think about convenience and maybe you, you know, mentioned this a little bit, but what's hard about it? Like, what don't we get? Like, what, what don't we see? And what's hard about your role and the way that you are um, trying to bring convenience to your customer or instant consumption? The hardest thing is consistent and quality execution. And ours is a model 
like most retailers, where you've got your typically lowest paid associates handling your customer, delivering your customer service, and executing what needs to get done to make your business run. And so because we acknowledge that, we try to culturally set up, come and go, and again, a, a spirit of service to where we call our corporate headquarters the store support center. And we look at our store associates as they come first in the value chain. And how do we support what happens in our stores? How do we make their days better so that they can make our customers' days better? How do we take complexity and non-value-added work away from our stores and into our store support center so that they can focus on what really matters and that's taking care of the customer. This episode brought to you by Wild Story. Wait, isn't that your company? It is. And without the generous support of Wild Story, this show would not be possible. A brand isn't a logo or a tagline or even your product. A brand is a person's gut feeling about a product, service, or company. It's what people say about you when you're not in the room. WildStory helps progressive founders and savvy marketers build purpose-driven brands that connect their business goals with the customers they want to serve so that both the business and the customer needs are met. This results in crazy, happy, loyal customers that purchase again and again, and this is great for business. If that sounds like something you and your team might want to learn more about, reach out at www.wildstory.com and we'd be happy to tell you more. Now back to our show. You know, I kind of want to shift a little bit and talk about how, you know, you and I became uh, introduced uh, via social media roundabout way. And right before uh, this episode airs, uh, we have Ariel on. And so a lot of our listeners will hear about a bit about that approach and things like that. But like what I'm really interested in hearing, you know, you're younger, you know, you just kind of, you know, laid out your age, you're, you're 32 if I'm doing the math. And so you definitely have that perspective of, of social media. But, I, you know, my family comes from the oil business and uh, my extended family. And so I've been around it a lot. And I think of it as a real like old fashioned, not willing to move, not very progressive. I mean, certainly not you family, but, you know, your, your competitors, of course. And to think that you came in and said, look, we're going to do things differently. We're going to meet our customers where they are, which is on social. I mean, like, how did that all come about? Was your dad like Tanner? Like, I don't know. Or was he just like, do it? Like, was he like, yes, like I believe in this. Well, my dad's been a huge supporter of mine. I mean, he's, he's, Given me opportunities that I didn't fully expect or maybe didn't have full confidence in my abilities, which if you don't know me, is kind of rare. And he believed in me and he supported me and he, and he encouraged me through the way. And re- growing up in the business and seeing us up close and from afar and up close, I've kind of come in and out of the company a few times on my trek. I understood that you know, we needed to stand for something greater and that come and go you know, a little bit had had lost a little bit of its differentiation. And I say this a lot. Success in the convenience store business is getting some getting somebody to inconvenience themselves to go to a convenience store. 
how do you drive some of that irrational behavior in which it might be a little slower or a lot more out of my way or potentially slightly more expensive, but there's just something there that I like and it just draws me to it. And we're doing what we can to differentiate on the product side. And you called out some of our healthier options. We're going to go further in that direction. But a bulk of our revenue is still in ubiquitous products, right? You're talking alcohol, you're talking tobacco, you're talking packaged goods, either out of the cooler or on the shelf. And there's that last X percent that we're doing proprietary stuff that is different. However, this social, you know, what I can take credit for is a lot smaller than what I can't take credit for. I can take credit for attracting creative talent and getting out of their way. And the good thing about social is that the numbers speak for themselves. And it's a subset or it's an industry in and of itself by now where you've got instantaneous feedback from the customer. You post something, what was your engagement? What were your likes? What were your views? What were your shares? And you can get that feedback and you can see if it's working or not. And you can see progress over time. It's more challenging if you hire somebody as an accountant and say, you know, do accounting, right? You're not getting instantaneous feedback from the customer. And so Ariel and I are friends. He's been a family friend of ours for uh, probably close to 20 years. He was uh, a roommate with my older brother in New York City back uh, early 2000s. And when we had this opening, I knew he could bring us something different. And I don't fully understand what he does. I don't get social like he does. That's okay. You know, Ariel has no approvals necessary to post. You know, he's this you know, director of communications at our company and he's got full authority and he fires away and he's smart enough and we see the progress and we see the success. And he has created that same type of empowerment culture on his team. You know, he recognizes Instagram is a powerful medium and recognizes that he's okay at Insta, but he, that's not really his micro generation and it's not really his sweet spot. So he hired somebody who was personally excellent at Instagram to come help us on that medium. TikTok becoming more important. Now, Ariel and I probably know nothing about TikTok, but we know enough to know that it's important. And so Ariel recruited and hired a person who was individually extremely successful at TikTok, and we empowered them to come in to come and go. And they've done an incredible job with that platform and our brand. And so our success in social, I don't deserve much credit at all. But where I can say is that I've tried to hire creative talent and get out of their way. Yeah. And as you were speaking, I think that you think that that is like normal or that that is the way that most people do it. But I can reflect back to you that it's not. And that, you know, that that leadership style of trusting in your people, like, where do you think that comes from? And I have to imagine, you know, again, having experience in family business, that's like, that's got to be hard, right? Like, it's got to be hard. I mean, come and go, might as well, it might as well say Krauss across your chest, you know? I mean, that is the same thing. I mean, come and go is your family. It is your family moniker. It's, it's, you, you laid it out very clearly. Like, this is your purpose in life to, to uh, make this, make this thing keep going. And like, where do you think that leadership style comes from where you have that ability to, care so much. And in that caring, you're able to let go and let people 
have their voice and do their job because I, it's not, it's not something we typically see. I think it starts with my dad and, you know, my dad trusted and empowered me and gave me the chance to succeed and he gave me the chance to fail. And he knew that if I screwed up, there'd be limited consequences, at least with the, the amount of slack he was giving me at the time. Right. And when you own your business, you don't have to explain yourself to anybody. You know, you, you don't have external accountability. It's, it's an incredibly powerful advantage that we have. And we have complete job security. So if a tweet fails or a post fails, which we've had a post or two fail, arguably. Ariel shared a couple on his uh, episode. Sure. So it's there, right? Okay. What happened? You could argue that that post ends up being a success because we're talking about it today. And it was a semi-innocuous tweet about a sporting event, the Iowa State game, which, you know, uh, Ariel, the uh, sports novice and Iowa newbie, uh, underestimated people's passion for, you know, the Cyhawk rivalry. And, you know, we got one wrong. Okay, we deleted the tweet, we wrote a mea culpa, and we moved on. And guess what? Since that failure of epic proportions where people, you know, like cutting up their and rewards loyalty cards, we've probably doubled our Twitter following since then, right? I mean, failing on a social media post has minor consequences. And so we've just said, you know, what we do at Come and Go, you know, it's not brain surgery, right? I mean, we're, we're selling snacks, we're selling vices, we're selling things that people enjoy, things that people need. Let's not take ourselves too seriously. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, when you, is that also your leadership style though? Like, I mean, you're kind of like pinpointing social, but are you very much a get the right people in the right place and, and let them do their job? Indeed. You know, I, listen, I'm less experienced than probably anybody that has a job like mine and a company like mine. Uh, I recognize that. And so in order to compensate for one of my perceived weaknesses, I hire people that have that experience and I don't try to tell them what to do. They've done this before. You know, I've got ideas. I've got passion. You know, I've grown up in the business. I know come and go really well. I know what might work here, but I don't always know how to get things from idea mode to execution mode. And so I find that in people and I hire them and I'm big on measurement tools. You know, to me, we've got to focus on the right measurables or metrics for our business. And we've got to, as a leadership group, set goals for ourselves over some period of time and say, okay, we're going to move this number from A to B over the next five years. And I'm going to empower a small number of people to be ultimately responsible for making progress. And so long as they stay within some, you know, brand code, operate within our core values, you know, do these things in a good and sustainable way, go for it. And if you screw up, that's okay. Because again, we're privately held. And if, if we miss earnings for a quarter or a year, it doesn't matter because we view come and go as a generational business. We make investments over a 10 to 20 year horizon. And so if we have some hiccups along the way, the setbacks are minor. So yes, I try to 
hire smart people, hire talented people, make sure that we align on a direction, make sure they understand how they'll be measured in terms of success, and then give them the tools they need to be successful. Well, and you mentioned that you had, you know, the latitude to fail and that you have some uh, security within there. Outside of social, are there is there a failure or an instance you've had since you've been at the helm of the company where you were just like that you can recall or, or you know, where <laughs> it was it was one where maybe you'd like to have back? Almost every decision you make you think is right based on the information that you have at the time of the decision. And there are very few decisions that I've made in my leadership experience here where I've looked back and said, what I knew then, I did or said the wrong thing. With the benefit of hindsight, you look back and say, boy, if I could have that one over again, I would. But if you're talking about you know, mistakes or you know, uh, asking for a mulligan, hiring is challenging. And when you hire externally, if you can do better than 50%, you're a good selector of talent. And you know, time will tell. I've made a lot of hires in my few years in the business, and I've not gotten every one of those right. And that's had, you know, at times, some significant consequence in terms of you know, setting us back months or maybe a year on a significant body of work. And so, yeah, you know, if I could look back at some of the hires that didn't last or didn't work and do those over again, I'd love that opportunity. (laughs) Who wouldn't, right? Who wouldn't? And, you know, one thing I I really love about come and go is that it's, it's a brand you've, you've branded it. And, you know, there's these things and we talk about sometimes on the show about, you know, how brands, not the logo and the name. And it, and it comes down to things like core values and the underlying essence and the why and the purpose of what you're trying to do. But you've also created some really cool, like visual brand uh, artifacts, some uh, uh, hats, some gear, some fanny packs. Like where does this focus? Cause some, someone's got to say, Hey, we're going to do this kind of stuff. Where does this focus on elevating and building the come and go brand come from? Because again, like you don't see that from a whole lot of other people in your category, right? Like you don't see Shell, you know, doing a really great job with that, and some of these other, you know, smaller, smaller uh, convenience stores and things like that. So where does where does that come from? Look, there's this incredible pride and loyalty and sometimes a rivalry amongst regional convenience store chains in America. And not every industry has this kind of oftentimes rooted in nostalgia, like loyalty and passion around some of these brands and this kind of, um, oh, you're that brand or where did you come from? Or you got to pick a side or whatever else. Uh, But there's this really strong, just organically developed passion for our brand that's existed, you know, in and of itself for decades that we've been able to tap into recently. And, and it's about, you know, from my perspective, at least, it's, it's about taking pride in what we do. And, and it's about wanting to lead and own a company that does cool stuff. And that, that doesn't just look at what we do as you know, X's and O's, but looks at what we do is you know, how do we build a company where we can have fun, where our associates can be proud of what we're doing, where our customers can be proud of what we're doing. And so, you know, oftentimes it's like not as complicated and, and being, you know, relatively small and certainly, you know, privately held helps, but 
if we want a fanny pack, and when I say we, I mean, I don't know, my brothers, me, um, REL, you know, then let's make fanny packs. And I bet we could find uh, some fans on social that would also love fanny packs. And, you know, your audience can't see the shirt I'm wearing, but, you know, Come and Go won an award for an LGBT organization in Iowa. And I filmed an acceptance speech and I said, you know what? I want a Come and Go t-shirt with pride colors. And so we made a Come and Go t-shirt with pride colors. And it's just a function of taking pride in what we do and wanting to uh, have fun along the way. And, you know, oftentimes these are little, you know, swags that we just develop and, and build and, you know, it creates buzz around the brand. It creates advocates out there. It gets us a lot of uh, awareness and, and, you know, we're on the right people's hips and we're on the right people's chests. And the next thing you know, like come and go becomes the brand of preference for the next generation of rising consumers. And so, you know, I'm confident that in 20 years and these kind of, you know, regional C-store brand wars, there'll be a lot more people out there saying, oh, yeah, come and go is my company because, you know, boy, back when I was in college, you know, the fanny pack was the coolest thing on campus or, you know, they stepped up for, you know, my school's LGBTQ organization in a way that other people didn't. And so, you know, we're having fun and we're breeding loyalty. Yeah. And I want you to think back into recent memory. And I want you to think back to the last time you saw someone wearing some come and go apparel in the wild, right? Not at, not at a store, but like you're just out and about, you know, maybe you're having a nice night out or something. Do you, can you remember that? I haven't been out of the house in about nine months, Mark, but <laughs> yeah, if I go back deep into the archives, I, I, I can have a couple of things that come to mind. Yes. Yeah. And so when you think of that, like, Maybe maybe you can share with us like real briefly like what you're thinking of and then like how does that make you feel when you see someone wearing your brand kind of out and about town and repping come and go and they they don't know who you are you know you're just you're just across the square or whatever like like can you share that with us? It's a unique feeling to work for a family business. It's you know I've worked outside the company I've worked inside the company and the amount of pride that I have for come and go is unparalleled. I wouldn't be able to find this uh, working for, I don't think any other company in the world. And so when I see other people choose to associate themselves with our brand, again, we're not a company that really earns any money on memorabilia or product or merchandise or wearables. You know, that is not what we do. So the fact that somebody is going beyond just you know, buying drinks and buying gas from us, but to say, you know what, this company, this brand, this store, this experience is so cool. I want it too. And I want it to be a part of my personal story and my personal brand. I get really proud. I get, I get really happy. I, I see it and it brings a smile to my face. And you were talking just prior to that too, about your involvement with the LGBTQ community. You know, as you know, I've been following you on uh, your company on social and you're, you're a champion of a lot of progressive issues. Where does that come from? Like this idea of, of being a, a steward, a champion, a representative for these types of issues. Again, we just don't see a lot of convenience stores or a lot of businesses. I mean, there's a lot of businesses that don't even do it in general that are out there uh, as, a, as a champion for, for these groups. And where does that all come from? And what's that all about? You know, my family is extremely privileged. 
I mean, just extremely wealthy. I mean, that's not really a secret, right? I mean, we are who we are. And through that privilege, we've been able to see a lot of the world. And we're, we're extremely well-traveled. I'm very fortunate to you know, have the experiences that I've had in life. I've been able to live in foreign countries. My brothers have lived in foreign countries. I've been able to educate myself to a, a master's level, as have all of my siblings. And you know, with that comes perspective. And we've always been raised with a strong sense of you know, what's right and a strong sense of respect and dignity for others. Again, going back to my grandfather, who as you know, one of the most prominent figures in the state of Iowa, was not going into stores and, and barking orders, but he was changing trash as a you know, 70 year old man in an expensive car in the parking lot. And we've always just felt a general respect for humanity. And personally, I feel responsible to stand up to improve equality in this country. Inequality exists in a variety of forms in America. And in order to make acceptable progress, it cannot be the oppressed that drive change. The privileged have to drive change. For us to really make transcendent progress and success in matters of all sorts of equality, it has to be people like myself, people who look like me, people who uh, have wealth and opportunity like I have, people who have education like I have, that recognize this and say, you know what? My family has plenty for generations. Families like ours and even families you know, less affluent and, and privileged as ours are doing so well that it's time we look around and say, why don't we be the force of change? And why don't we reach a handout and help some of our brothers, our sisters, our friends, our associates, our customers in these oppressed communities and say, I see you, I respect you, I'm here for you, and I'm gonna put your needs and you getting to basic levels of human dignity above me getting, who knows, uh, a lake house or some other like ostentatious acquisition that we could do because you know the time has come for you know, us in power and us in privilege to join this fight and to, to stand up for matters of equality because, you know, it's, it's been on too long. And I recognize now that, you know, I've got this platform, I've got podcasts like this, I've got other engagements where I can speak on things and I want to draw attention to these. And it is rare, unfortunately, in our industry and it's rare, unfortunately, in the corporate world. And that's too bad. But maybe if I go first and other leaders and companies say, okay, like they did that. And guess what? Like their business didn't fail or customers didn't leave them wholesale or whatever measurement they might be worried about, that outcome didn't happen. And guess what? People got a little bit better life out of it. Then that's success. The impact that I want to leave in this world, sure, it's about come and go being sustainable, but it's about bigger than that. It's about how do we how do we push for a better humanity? And, and one of the things of just how America is constructed is that private enterprise drives an outsized amount of change in the world. We have this free market approach to most of our economies, to most of our societies. And so I look at something that we did last year where we gave maternity leave to our frontline associates. And so now come and go associate working in a store 
get six weeks of fully paid maternity leave. That is rare for retail in Iowa. We were able to give that benefit to about 3,000, 4,000 people, right? But if bigger companies look at what we did and say, you know what, that was good, or now I have to do that thing to be competitive in the labor market with come and go, then those 3,000 people, and then these other companies over here follow, then that might be 30,000 people. And then next thing you know, we might have just gotten a whole generation of Iowans or Americans that have access to what should be a basic civic right to be in this country of paid leave for newborn children got that benefit. And so what we try to do is recognize the inequality in America and stand up for those that are oppressed and do what we can. And listen, before I stop talking, we're not perfect. All right. We're not we don't do everything right, all right? And we've not been this way forever, and we've got a long history, and I'm sure there's things that people can point to and say, what about this and what about that? And those things are probably true and they're probably fair to say. But what I can say is that we care. We see oppression, we don't stand for it, and we're trying to stamp it out, and we're gonna do better every day, but we're not gonna be perfect starting today or tomorrow, but I promise you we're gonna make progress in the right direction. Mm, Yeah, and and certainly, you know, if you can't hear it in Tanner's voice, you, you know, I thought he was going to come through the screen at me. He's so passionate about this issue. And so he does care. And, and, and Tanner, as we, as we kind of come to the end of our time here, I've got two more questions for you. The first being, what's your favorite store or, or at least the, the one that you're most proud of and why? My favorite store is at the corner of 60th and Ashworth Road in West Des Moines, because that was where I started working. Um, the family age of first employment at Come and Go is nine. And so at nine years old, I put on the white shirt and tie for our uniform then. And on Tuesdays and Thursdays after school, I would go to work. I would sweep. I would mop. I would stock the cooler. I would clean the shelves. And if I was lucky, I could run the register. And so for me, that's where it all started. Yeah. I mean, I can only imagine you're like, you know, just waiting probably as eight year old Tanner to become nine to go put on that uniform. I actually tried to negotiate an earlier start date. This is speaks to my passion for the company. So my brother started at nine as well. And he's just older in his grade than I was. He's an October birthday. So he turned nine early in third grade. I'm a June birthday. So I turned nine late in third grade. And so I tried to negotiate with my dad, you know, hey, Ryan got to be uh, working in his second month of third grade. Therefore, I think I should be able to start working in my second month of third grade. And that's the, no, you start working when you're nine. And so I went back to school. Are you uh, June 19th by any chance? June 22nd. Oh, I thought we were going to share a birthday. I was really excited. Okay. I was going to announce it like live on the show that we, we had a, a similar birthday. But uh, Tanner, so I want you to think back to that nine-year-old boy on that first day walking into Comago and that brand new uniform, so proud. And what do you think he would say if he saw where you are today? Well, that happened fast. This ascension into leadership happened quicker than my wildest dreams. But, you know, I, I hope I made that nine-year-old proud. You know, I hope I make all 5,000 people that we employ proud. I take a tremendous amount of pride in this company. I hope I make my grandfather proud. He's an incredible role model in my life. And you know, he passed away in 2013. You know, he knew I was I was going down this career path. And so I was fortunate enough to have that 
alignment with him before he passed. Um, but I think about him every day and, you know, I, I just try to take my responsibility and stand up for what's important and make those around me proud. And that is Tanner Krause, president of Come and Go. I'm sure you could feel Tanner's passion and commitment coming through the mic. We had a chance to talk a bit after, and it dawned on me that Tanner sees entrepreneurship, the business, not as the purpose, but as the tool. The tool that can affect change both locally and globally. The tool that can provide better lives for their employees. And the tool that can be a voice for those who can't speak for themselves. And yes, we're still talking about convenience stores, but when done right, like come and go, any business can change the world. A big thank you to Tanner Krause and the team at Come and Go. Your brand was started as a love story, and I can't wait to see where the love story goes next. We will link to all things Tanner and Come and Go in the show notes. Well, that's the show. Until next time. Make sure to visit our website, www.wildstory.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. I like big stories and I cannot lie. You other storytellers can't deny. 